It was a dark and stormy night with a fierce wind. A man and his son venture out into the elements. The weather, while harsh, is just what they need. For some time, the man has been experimenting with static electricity, trying to work out its secrets. Many had speculated before that lightning might be electricity, but no one has been able to prove it. For a while, the man had meditated on the idea of carrying a metal rod to a high plate, like a church tower in a thunderstorm, to see if he can make the connection. But the Philadelphia church was only half constructed at the time. Impatient and wanting results, the man came up with another plan. A plan that would cement his legacy in one of the canon stories of scientific history. He would use a kite, attached to the cord of the kite would be a metal key. That would attract the lightning, he reasoned. Attached to the cord of the kite would be a primitive battery called a Leyden jar. If lightning was electricity, then he could catch it. As the kite ascended into the tumult above, they waited with trepidation, vaguely aware of the danger involved but not realising that this experiment could kill them instantly. Suddenly a mighty bolt of lightning strikes the key, and by some sheer miracle, neither the man or his son are harmed. The idea had worked. With this, the man, Benjamin Franklin, was able to successfully demonstrate that lightning was electricity. Benjamin Franklin was one of the founding fathers of the United States of America, and his story is an American story of rags to riches. His life was extraordinary, and he was accomplished in many domains. He was a successful entrepreneur and businessman. He was a successful scientist. He was an excellent writer and thinker. He invented countless devices, many of which are still in use to this day, such as bifocal glasses and lightning rods, which protect buildings from thunderbolts. On top of all that, he was a key statesman and diplomat. He played a key role in the Revolutionary War, and his was one of the signatures on the Declaration of Independence. Hi, I'm Shane Lee, and this is the Enduring Lives podcast, where we explore the lives and enduring legacies of the world's most extraordinary people. In this episode, we are exploring the life of Benjamin Franklin. If you want to find all the previous episodes of the podcast, or if you want to see the show notes with sources for this episode, head over to EnduringLives.com. And if you have five minutes to let us know what you think by leaving a review of the podcast wherever you're listening, please do. It would really help the show. Join me as we explore the enduring life of Benjamin Franklin.
Benjamin Franklin was born in Boston, Massachusetts on January the 17th, 1706, using the modern date system. He was the 15th of 17 children born to his parents, Josiah and Abiah Franklin. Franklin grew up in a household that valued hard work and education, and he was educated in reading, writing and arithmetic at the Boston Latin School. Benjamin Franklin did not grow up in a wealthy household, but he was not necessarily impoverished either. His father, Josiah Franklin, was a skilled craftsman and made a living as a candle maker and soap boiler. However, the family was large, with 17 children, which made it difficult to support everyone on one income. Later in life, Franklin wrote about the challenges he faced growing up in a large family with limited resources. He spoke about the need to be frugal and to make the most out of what he had. He also spoke about the importance of self-reliance and self-improvement, both of which were values that he carried with him throughout his life. As a child, Franklin showed an early aptitude for learning, but his formal education was cut short when he was only 10 years old, and he was forced to drop out of school to help his father with his candle-making business. Despite the setback, Franklin was an avid reader and continued to educate himself by reading books and newspapers. Franklin's early experiences of working in his father's shop taught him the value of hard work and resourcefulness. He learned the skills of his father's trade and began to think of ways to improve upon it. For example, he came up with a way to make the production of candles more efficient by using moulds to create uniform shapes and sizes. After working for his father for two years, he was apprenticed to his older brother James, a printer, in 1718. This was a common practice at the time, as many families could not afford to provide a formal education for all of their children. During his apprenticeship, Franklin learned the printing trade and developed an interest in writing. He wrote essays and letters under various pseudonyms, including Silence Do Good, and submitted them to his brother's newspaper, the New England Current. These letters became popular and helped establish Franklin's reputation as a writer. Franklin's writing and wit attracted attention, but he also faced challenges in his relationship with his brother James, who was often critical of his work. Eventually, their disagreements grew more significant, leading Franklin to break his apprenticeship and leave Boston for New York in 1723. He was aged only 17 at the time when he ventured out on his own. Franklin arrived in New York, but he didn't stay long. After failing to find work in the city, Franklin quickly moved to Philadelphia. Upon arriving in Philadelphia, Franklin initially struggled to find employment. He first approached Andrew Bradford, who started the first printing business in Philadelphia, but Bradford did not have a job for Franklin. However, Bradford did introduce Franklin to Samuel Keimer, who was another in the printing business, and Keimer offered Franklin a position at a printing house. During this time, Franklin continued to refine his skills as a printer 
and expand his intellectual horizons by devouring books from a lending library. He also started networking with influential individuals and engaging in intellectual discussions. One of these influential individuals was the governor of Pennsylvania, Sir William Keith. Keith had seen a letter written by Franklin and was impressed by the writing and he was astonished when he found out that the author was only 17 years old. Keith is reported to have said he is a young man of great promise. Shortly after, the governor entered Keimer's printing shop where Franklin was working and Keimer thought that the governor was there to see him but he was surprised to find out that he wanted to see Franklin instead, who was himself equally surprised. The governor took Franklin to the local tavern, where they ate Madeira. The governor recommended that Franklin start his own printing business, and that he would give him the printing work required by the province of Pennsylvania. Not only that, but the governor told Franklin that he would write to Ben's father, advising that he finance the new business venture. With Keith's encouragement and a letter to his father, Franklin set off for Boston that April. When he arrived, Franklin showed off his newly acquired fine clothes and his silver coins. While he was welcomed by most of his family, his brother James did not take kindly to his return and his displays of his new status. Franklin later in life, while writing his autobiography, regarded this showing off as a mistake. He was also later to recount a tale from this visit to Boston, in which he bumped his head against a low beam. Cotton Mather, who he was with at the time, and who had tried to warn him to stoop to avoid banging the beam, said to him, let this be a caution to you, to not always hold your head so high. Stoop, young man, stoop as you go through this world, and you'll miss many hard thumps. Franklin regarded this as a great lesson in humility and the avoidance of excessive pride. When Franklin spoke to his father and showed him the letter from the governor of Pennsylvania, his father was impressed, but he nevertheless refused to finance Franklin's new venture because he thought that Franklin was too young to be trusted with such an investment. By this time he was only 18. His father did suggest, however, that if Franklin could save enough money, that by the time he was 21, then he would invest the difference. Franklin returned to Philadelphia. When Governor Keith found out that Franklin's father was not yet prepared to invest the money to fund the new business venture, Keith said that he would do it himself. He suggested that Franklin sail to London in order to buy the necessary equipment he needed. Governor Keith would pay for the voyage and the supplies. The way he would do that would be to give Franklin letters of credit. So Franklin prepared to go to London. Before he went, however, he proposed to a girl called Deborah Reed, although she wouldn't come to London with him. 
in November 1724, following the idea of Governor Keith, Franklin left Keimer's printing house and made the adventurous journey to London with his friend James Ralph. On the voyage, he met a Quaker called Thomas Denham. When they arrived in London on the 24th of December 1724, Franklin found, to his horror, that Governor Keith had not sent the letters of credit he had promised. Franklin spoke to Denham, who was familiar with Governor Keith, and when Franklin told him about Keith's letters of credit, Denham laughed at the idea and explained that Governor Keith had no credit himself. We get a real insight into Franklin here. He's just arrived in London with next to no money, and the financing he was depending on has turned out to have never been real. While Franklin confessed to feeling some ill will towards Governor Keith, he did not hold a grudge, which is surprising given the scope of this betrayal. In his autobiography, Franklin later wrote about Governor Keith with an understanding tone. He said that Governor Keith wished to please everyone, and having little to give, he gave expectations. Denim suggested that despite this enormous setback, Franklin should make the most of his time in London to improve himself, so that when he goes back to America, he'll be all the better for it. So he did. Franklin managed to secure a job at Samuel Palmer's printing house. Franklin's friend James failed to secure a job and was forced to borrow money from Franklin. Franklin spent a year working at Palmer's, after which he got another job at a different printing house. This time it was John Watts' printing house. The time that Franklin spent in London afforded him the opportunity to meet many interesting and eminent people. One of these people was Sir Hans Sloane, who was at the time secretary to the Royal Society. Sloane was a famous collector of interesting objects, and today his house in Bloomsbury is a museum full of the rare artefacts he collected throughout his life. Franklin visited this very house and sold a purse to Sloane that was made of asbestos. Franklin was a skilled swimmer, and for a time when he was in London, he contemplated opening a swimming school, believing that that might be the way to make his fortune. In fact, one day whilst rowing along the Thames, with some of the other printers he worked with, Franklin decided to show off his swimming skills, diving into the water. After seeing this display, one of the men Franklin was with offered to invest in Franklin's swimming school. But it was not to be. After having spent a long time in London, around 18 months, Franklin was heading back to America. Franklin had earned a lot of money while in London, and he had not spent much of it on himself. But he was not returning to Pennsylvania with a great fortune. And the main reason for this was Franklin's friend, James Ralph, who, according to Franklin, kept me poor, and who owed him around £27, which Franklin admitted he was never likely to see again. Franklin 
did not hold this against him. On the 23rd of July, 1726, they set sail from Gravesend, bound back to America. Franklin was accompanied by Thomas Denham, who he had met on the way to England. In fact, it was Denham who paid for Franklin's return to America, with the intention of opening a shop and Franklin working as a clerk there. It took them several months to arrive, which they did on the 11th of October the same year. Arriving back in Philadelphia, Franklin found that Governor Keith, the man who had betrayed him and led him to go to London, was no longer the governor. Franklin passed him in the street and neither man spoke. Franklin had also found that Deborah Reed, the woman he had proposed to before leaving for London, had been persuaded by her friends to marry another man instead. Which is not altogether surprising, as Franklin seemed to have nearly forgotten her while he was in London, writing her only one letter that we know of. Denham opened his store on Water Street. Franklin and Denham were lodging together and Franklin had come to regard Denham as a level-headed father figure. For a few months, all was well. Franklin took to being a shopkeeper and was successful at it. But not long after, Denham became ill and died. Franklin again found himself in a difficult situation as he had done when he arrived in London to find he had no letters of credit. Much to his chagrin, and after having no success finding another position in a shop, Franklin accepted an offer from his old boss, Samuel Keimer, to become the manager of his printing house. He found that he was skilled at the running of a printing house, and became well liked by the workers there. In addition, the business was closed on Saturdays and Sundays, which meant that he had two full days which he could dedicate to reading. One of the requirements of a printing house were metal letters called type, which would be used to transfer the ink to the paper. The problem, however, was that in America at the time, there was no foundry that manufactured type, as Franklin needed more type and he had seen the methods used to create type in London, he decided to create his own, and in doing so, became the first American to manufacture type. Not long after this, and while still being employed by Keimer in 1727, Franklin founded a club for, in his words, mutual improvement. This club was called the Junto, which was also sometimes referred to as the Leather Apron Club. The members would gather on Friday evenings to discuss various topics, but the club also benefited Franklin in business as it was a source of networking opportunity. This was important because Franklin had begun to suspect that Keimer was planning to replace him as Franklin had been instructed to train four new apprentices. One of these apprentices was Hugh Meredith, who was also a member of the Junto, and it was with him that Franklin formed a clandestine plan 
to start a competing printing house. Franklin and Meredith's printing house was to be funded by Meredith's father, who was to provide £200. In 1728, the two leased premises on Market Street and very quickly received a large order from the Quakers, which was a result of a connection to one of the members from the Junto. Their new printing house started to develop a good reputation, primarily because of Franklin's work ethic. He was reported to start work before everyone else and finish long after everyone else too. In one instance, while working on the Quaker order, there was an accident with the printing late at night, which required redoing the day's work. Franklin stayed working throughout the night until the next day to complete the task. Franklin's work ethic was not matched by Hugh Meredith, who was frequently drunk. Franklin thought it was a bad idea to be in partnership with a man like Meredith. Two of Franklin's friends offered to buy Meredith out of the partnership, to which Meredith quickly agreed in order to move to work in farming. From the discussions at the Junto meetings and now Franklin's own print house, he had come up with the idea of producing a newspaper which would be a competitor to the only newspaper in town, the American Weekly Mercury, which was owned by Andrew Bradford, who you may recall Franklin approached for a job when he arrived in Philadelphia. George Webb was one of the members of the Junto, but he also worked at Samuel Keimer's print house, which, of course, Franklin competed with. George told Keimer about Franklin's plan to produce a newspaper, and Keimer quickly stole the idea and produced the town's second newspaper. Franklin thought that the idea of competing with a third paper would now be a bad idea. He came up with a strategic play. He would write for Bradford's paper. Franklin reasoned that his writing would attract more readers to Bradford's paper, which would take potential readers away from Keimer's paper, causing it to fail. When it failed, Franklin would be able to launch his own paper and more easily compete. Incredibly, the scheme worked. Keimer ended up going into debt as a result of his paper, for which he was imprisoned for a time. Keimer then sold his business to Franklin and promptly fled to Barbados. So, in October 1729, Franklin created his newspaper called the Pennsylvania Gazette and was in direct competition with Bradford's paper, which was now the only other competition in town. Through more shrewd business manoeuvres, Franklin made headway against Bradford and became the official printer of Pennsylvania. Franklin would often publish his own writings in the newspaper. In one of the pieces, he wrote, he defended the idea of a free press, an idea that is as relevant today as it was in Franklin's day. While Franklin was in favour of a free press, he thought that publishers should exercise caution with the writings they publish. Franklin wrote, 
I have also always refused to print such things as might do real injury to any person. And he stuck to this principle. Franklin gave a particularly interesting story relating to the temptation to publish a piece that violated Franklin's idea of good sense. The customer wanting to publish the piece offered to pay to have it included in the paper. Franklin was conflicted about this, so he decided he would sleep on it. On his way home, he bought the cheapest bread he could and ate it as his evening meal. Then, instead of sleeping on his bed, he wrapped himself in a coat and slept on the floor. In the morning, Franklin decided against publishing the piece. Because after he proved to himself that he could endure the hardships of being poor, with little to eat and only the floor as a bed, he realised it was a bad idea to sacrifice his principles for money. In 1730, aged 24, Franklin found himself a successful and prominent member of society, but he was still a bachelor, and he thought that it was time he got married. After a member of the Junto's wife connected the two, Franklin started courting a girl. At the time, it was common for a payment called a dowry to be paid by the girl's family to her husband when they got married. Franklin decided that the dowry he should receive should be enough to pay off the money he owed at the printing house. He estimated this to be no more than £100, which was a considerable sum at the time. The girl's family said they did not have that kind of money, to which Franklin responded by suggesting they mortgage their house. The courtship broke off. While Franklin attempted to find another match, he visited prostitutes and lamented the expense. He had discovered that the printing business was viewed as a lowly one, which is not surprising given the view from the outside of the number of failures in this business which the town had seen. In fact, it was this reason that the previous girl's family had cited when they broke off the courtship. Deborah Reed, the girl that Franklin had proposed to before going to London, found herself in a pitiable position after she had married John Rogers. John had barely made any money when he absconded to the West Indies, where he was rumoured to have died. Franklin had been seeing more of the Reed family as he gave them advice on business. Not long after, in September, Franklin and Deborah were living together as a married couple. In making the decision to marry Deborah, Franklin had written a list of pros and cons before committing. As Deborah's husband, James, was only rumoured to have died, Franklin and Deborah could not get officially married, as it would have been classed as bigamy, which was an offence carrying a penalty of lashes and life imprisonment. Instead of a traditional marriage, therefore, Franklin and Deborah had what's called a common-law marriage. Historians have not been able to nail down the exact date with any consensus, but 
sometime around this period between 1730 and 1731. Franklin fathered an illegitimate son. Not with Deborah, but with an unknown woman whose identity has been the topic of much historical intrigue. It may have been that she was one of the prostitutes that Franklin visited, especially as Franklin took custody of the boy named William. Franklin found in Deborah a wife who complimented him. In his autobiography, he praised her frugality and industry. It wasn't long before they had their first legitimate child. This was Francis Folger Franklin, or Frankie, and he was born in October 1732. Reading was still an important activity for Franklin. In an effort to read more books, after the Junto had rented rooms, Franklin suggested that all the members should store their books in these rooms. That way, any member of the Junto could borrow any book they liked. From this small idea, Franklin formed a larger one. He wanted to form a library. His idea was to have members of the library pay dues in order to purchase books which any of them could read. This was to become the Pennsylvania State Library. Franklin founded this library in 1731. During his lifetime, it grew larger and larger. What's amazing is that this library still exists today. At the time of recording, nearly 300 years after Franklin started it. It was also around this time that Franklin started to expand his business, entering into a number of partnerships with other men who would open new printing houses in new locations. Franklin supplied the type, the presses and the equipment required in exchange for a cut. In 1731, Franklin started to publish an almanac called Paul Richard's Almanac. It was written by Franklin under the guise of a pseudonym, Richard Saunders. This almanac will be written and published for 25 years. Much of Franklin's reputation is based upon it. Among other things, it contained aphorisms and sayings that bestowed upon the reader Franklin's worldly wisdom. Many of the sayings Franklin devised emphasise valuing frugality and industriousness. One of them is, lost time is never found again. As we have seen so far, Franklin was captivated by the idea of self-improvement. Franklin wanted to become better all round. In one area in which he wanted to improve was his morality. He wanted to attain what he termed moral perfection. To do this, he wrote down 13 virtues. These included silence, speak not but what may benefit others or yourself, avoid trifling conversation, order, let all your things have their places, let each part of your business have its time. Resolution. Resolve to perform what you ought. Perform without fail what you resolve. 
frugality. Make no expense but to do good to others or yourself, i.e. waste nothing. Industry. Lose no time. Always be employed in something useful. Cut off all unnecessary actions. For each one, he decided he would spend a week focusing on approving his adherence to that particular virtue. His reasoning being that the focus each week would lead to an overall and enduring improvement in that virtue. With 13 virtues, he said he intended to go through them all in 13 weeks, and then he could repeat that four times a year, totalling 52 weeks. In order to further his quest of self-improvement, Franklin had started learning other languages. He taught himself French, German, Spanish, Italian and Latin. Franklin made use of German when in 1732 he published the first American newspaper written in the language, Die Philadelphia Zeitung, literally the Philadelphia newspaper. The French that he learned would also be particularly useful to him when he became the first American diplomat as ambassador to France in 1776. Although we're getting ahead of ourselves. In 1736, tragedy struck the Franklin household when Ben's four-year-old legitimate son Frankie died of smallpox. Ben had not had the chance to get Frankie inoculated against the disease. Inoculation at the time was a new medical method and there were rumours in the town that Franklin had gotten Frankie inoculated and that was what had caused his death. A week after Frankie died, Ben published a piece in which he announced Frankie's death and also squashed the rumours surrounding the cause of his death. Franklin was an early supporter of inoculation and had published support of it previously. In the announcement of his son's death, he also made clear his support of inoculation. In the same year as Frankie's death, Franklin organised an establishment, one of whose aims was preventing deaths. The Union Fire Company was conceived and organised by Franklin, He had written previously under the pen name Pennsylvanius about the remarkable men who volunteered to fight fires and had suggested that those who didn't volunteer should contribute to a fund to get equipment for these men. And so Franklin organised just that. But not only that. At the time, there was a similar organisation, or lack thereof, of a police service. Instead of a funded service that is common today, groups of volunteers would act as the police. Franklin had just been elected postmaster of Philadelphia in 1737 when he proposed that money from new property taxes could be used to fund an official group. This didn't happen as quickly as the fire service because of legislation, but after many years it was enacted. One of the most famous and enduring images of Ben Franklin is that of the lightning bolt and the kite. It's on a par with Newton and the apple as one of the most 
well-known scientific stories. But before we hear that fascinating tale, we should explore the preceding event that led to Ben Franklin becoming Ben Franklin, the scientist and inventor. So far we have seen Franklin the printer, writer and businessman. And we have only seen glimpses of his inventiveness, for example with his manufacturing of type. One of Franklin's most well-known inventions was the Franklin stove, sometimes called the Pennsylvania fireplace. This invention came about because Franklin had studied heat. In one of his early experiments, he concluded that dark fabrics better absorb heat than lighter fabrics. In studying heat, Franklin wondered if there could be some practical use to the conclusions he was making. The result of this was designing a new type of stove which was more efficient than existing stoves, requiring less fuel and it dramatically reduced the amount of smoke that entered the room in which the stove was placed. One of the things that sets Franklin apart, as we have seen, was his industry. The Franklin stove is a primary example of this. His curiosity and scientific inquiry led him to investigate and learn new things, and from this he devised a new stove. But he didn't just stop there. He had one of the members of the Junto manufacture the stoves, and then he promoted and sold them using the written word. We have also seen Franklin's belief in civic duty, and his invention of this stove also shows this. Because he was offered a patent for the design of the stove by the governor of Pennsylvania, but he declined. He noted his reasons in his autobiography. As we enjoy great advantages from the invention of others, we should be glad of an opportunity to serve others by any invention of ours. And this we should do freely and generously. Around the same time as this, and in the same vein of civic duty and learning, in 1743, Franklin proposed the idea for an academy which would later develop into the University of Pennsylvania. Next, Franklin founded the American Philosophical Society, which was devoted to science learning and the humanities. Members of this society included towering historical figures such as George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, John Adams and James Madison. One of the lesser known inventions of Franklin's was the urinary catheter. While Franklin did not strictly invent the device, he did vastly improve the existing European design. This invention came about when Franklin's brother James had kidney stones and had to have his bladder drained with a catheter. This was an extremely painful process, mainly because the existing catheters at the time were rigid which meant insertion hurt. Franklin's solution was to design a catheter which had flexible tubes and was therefore less painful to insert. In 1743, Franklin's only daughter, Sarah, was born. She was often known as Sally. We don't know much about her early relationship with her father, 
but it has been suggested that Franklin was a distant and somewhat detached parent. This distance may have been because of Franklin's painful experience of the death of his son Frankie. It may have also been because of how busy Franklin was. 1743 was also the year in which Franklin became interested in electricity. In a visit to Boston, Franklin saw a lecture by Dr. Archibald Spencer, who made a living by travelling round and giving scientific demonstrations. Of particular interest to Franklin was the display of static electricity. Franklin became acquainted with Dr. Spencer, and when Dr. Spencer visited Philadelphia, Franklin helped sell tickets to his lectures. One of the demonstrations that Dr. Spencer gave that was particularly popular involved a glass tube that was used to generate static electricity. Franklin sought to replicate the result for himself and arranged for a glassblower to create him a similar tube. One of the interesting studies Franklin conducted was to create a device to store electrical charge. While he didn't invent the device, which was made from Leyden jars, he did come up with the name for it that we use to this day. The term was battery. That's right, Ben Franklin was the first to associate the term battery with electricity. Not only that, but he was also the first to use charged, conductor and neutral in an electrical context. He enjoyed tinkering with electricity and created a number of interesting devices, such as an electrified metal spider and an electric fence. Franklin wondered about lightning. He had made the connection that others had made previously, that lightning might be electricity. No one had yet proved that through experimentation, however. Franklin proposed an experiment in which electrical charge could be drawn from the clouds. He thought that a man could hold a long metal rod from a high platform, and when low clouds passed, it might afford sparks. Surprisingly, Franklin commented that he thought there was no danger with this approach. But he thought that a wax handle on the metal rod would be a sufficient insulator. His proposed experiment was first attempted in France after Franklin had written to the Royal Society in London. The man who attempted it was electrocuted, but managed to survive. Franklin wanted to attempt the experiment himself. He had originally intended to use Christchurch in Philadelphia as a high vantage point from which to conduct the experiment, but it was still being constructed at the time in 1752. Instead of waiting, Franklin happened on the idea of using a kite. And thus, one of the most well-known scenes in scientific history was about to unfold. Franklin had arranged for his now 21-year-old son William to help fly the silk kite. Franklin had tied a key to the lower part of the kite string in order to attempt 
to attach a wire to it and capture sparks in a leaden jar battery. Initially, nothing happened. But after some time, Franklin touched the key and managed to draw sparks. He was lucky to survive. In capturing the sparks in the Leyden jar and observing that the behaviour was the same as known electricity, Franklin had made the experimental connection between lightning and electricity. For this discovery and his work on electricity, Franklin was awarded the prestigious Copley Medal from the Royal Society and he joined the Society as a fellow. If he did nothing more in his life, his name would be forever remembered as a key contributor to the tree of scientific knowledge. As you may expect, he didn't stop there. He achieved so much more. This experiment paved the way for a great deal of scientific progress. But one of the first practical uses Franklin found for it was to protect buildings. At the time, if lightning struck a building, it would be severely damaged in most cases. Because no one knew what lightning was, no one was able to provide a solution. But after his experiment, Ben Franklin invented the lightning rod. This was a piece of metal that would be attached to a building and would provide a path for the electricity to travel down which would then go into the ground. This was another invention of Franklin's, which we still use to this day. Part of Franklin's ability to experiment and invent around this time came from a move away from his printing business earlier in 1748. On January the 1st that year, he signed a partnership agreement with a man called David Hall. The two had met in 1744, and after a failed venture to set up David, a printing business in the West Indies, David was instead set up to manage the day-to-day affairs of Franklin's Philadelphia business, allowing Franklin more time for scientific inquiry and public works. One of his successful public works, which we have mentioned earlier, was the University of Pennsylvania. Not only did Franklin propose the idea of an academy to educate the youth of the town, but he was instrumental in making it happen, particularly with raising funds. Shortly thereafter, he also founded what is regarded as the first hospital in America. He did this with Dr. Thomas Bond. Franklin was again critical to the project's success. He raised funds for the hospital and published a note in the Pennsylvania Gazette asking for donations. He argued that caring for the sick in society was an act that was better done collectively than individually and that there was a moral need for people to care for the ill and unwell. One of the most charged topics when discussing Ben Franklin is his ownership of slaves and his advertising of slaves in his newspaper. Both are true. There's no getting away from those facts. However, in later life, as we will learn, he became an ardent abolitionist. Franklin had served as the clerk 
of the Pennsylvania Assembly from 1736. But in 1751, one of the members died and Franklin was elected to take his place and Franklin gave his clerkship to his son William. It was this position that gave him much more influence when founding the Pennsylvania Hospital. Franklin's entrepreneurial tendencies as a businessman stuck with him when he moved away from business and moved towards learning and public life. When he saw problems, he devised solutions. In one example, after becoming frustrated at trailing dust and dirt into his house after walking in from the dirty street, he decided to find a poor man to pay to sweep the streets. He then realised that this was a common good and it would be better funded as such instead of coming directly from his pocket. So in his typical style, he wrote about the problem and the solution of paying a man to sweep the streets. He noted the benefits that would accrue to the people and businesses alike, and he then proposed a new tax that would be used to pay for the services of a street sweeper. Franklin was convincing, and the town was in favour of the idea. This led to Franklin drafting a bill in the Philadelphia Assembly which would do just that. But Franklin had also become aware of another street-level problem, the need for street lighting. So part of the bill proposed the installation of street lamps throughout Philadelphia. Street lighting was not ubiquitous as it is today. And so this was an innovative idea. In installing the street lamps, they had to be sourced from somewhere. But the ones that could be found were not to Franklin's standard. He noticed they had several defects. As these were oil lamps, when they burned they produced smoke. But the lamps were not well designed, which meant that the smoke would darken the glass. Franklin took it upon himself to design a better lamp with holes for ventilation in order to solve this problem. As we saw when Franklin co-founded the Hospital of Pennsylvania, he saw the value in collective action to solve a common problem. Nowhere was this sentiment more pronounced than when he urged the separate colonies of America to join together for their common benefit. In particular, at the time in the early 1750s, there were tensions between the British colonists and the French colonists mainly over disputed claims of land in America. This led to the French and Indian War. It was called that because the Native Americans, or Indians, played a key role in fighting both sides. Ben Franklin, while attending the Albany Congress, which was a meeting of various representatives from the colonies, suggested that unionising was the way forward. He proposed the Albany Plan of Union which argued for a central government for all colonies. In a famous political cartoon of Franklin's, the slogan was, Join or Die. Franklin argued that unionisation was the only way the colonies would survive. The plan of the union he presented in 1754 wasn't adopted, but it did pave the way for later unionisation and the foundation of the United States of America. This period also saw Franklin promoted to Deputy Postmaster General for the British colonies, 
a role he would share with a man called William Hunter. It was a role that Franklin had sought for a few years. He had even set aside £300 for lobbying the British to give him the role, which, if granted, would be a position for life. But in the display of his wit, he mused that the less he spent on this, the better, as the position for life was an uncertain tenure. After being awarded the role, Franklin set about improving the postal service, establishing the first home delivery system, and improving the overall efficiency of the organisation, which led to the post office becoming profitable for the first time. In 1755, Franklin arguably became one of the most powerful men in the American colonies, when he organised and became the de facto leader of the Pennsylvania Militia as it was signed into law. Franklin had organised the militia back in 1747, but it didn't become sanctioned by the Pennsylvania Assembly until 1755. The need for a militia had become more of a pressing concern with the French and Indian War. One of the problems Ben Franklin was tasked with solving was the levels of influence of the Penn family who owned the province of Pennsylvania after having been given the land as a payment for a debt from Charles II. The Pennsylvania Assembly had proposed new taxes to pay for various things, such as the new militia. But William Penn was not willing to pay the taxes on his estates. So in 1757, Franklin was sent by the Pennsylvania Assembly to London in order to lobby the British government to intervene. Franklin arrived in London aged 51 with his 26-year-old son William with him, along with two slaves. His wife Deborah stayed in Pennsylvania. They found lodgings in Craven Street, which today is the site of a museum dedicated to Franklin. He had originally intended to stay in London for a few months, but ended up staying for 15 years, although during this period he did go back to America for a brief while. His attempt to get the British government to intervene with the Penn family proved unsuccessful. While Franklin was at the time a loyalist to the crown and believed that those living in the colonies should be treated like and granted the same rights as any British citizen, the British simply did not see it that way. Franklin attempted to persuade the other members of the Penn family to his cause, but ended up causing offence at his suggestion that the Penn's family's estates in the colonies, exemption from the taxes which fund their defence, was unjust. Within a year, it was clear that Franklin's attempt had failed. So in 1758, he had to consider travelling back to America or spending more time in England. He chose to stay. He travelled around the country and visited many interesting places. One of them was Ecton, which is where the Franklin family were originally from. In fact, Franklin's first cousin, Mary Franklin, still lived there at the time, and Ben and his son met her. Another of the places he visited was Cambridge University, where he met the chemist John Hadley. The two of them conducted various experiments to better understand evaporation. 
These experiments led Franklin to speculate, but not confirm, the idea that the cooling effect of wind does not come from the temperature of the wind cooling people, but instead the wind causes increased evaporation and that cools people. It turns out he was dead right. Franklin also travelled to Scotland and stayed in Edinburgh for a while. Here he met two of the greatest men of the Scottish Enlightenment, David Hume and Adam Smith. Franklin was well known by the time he visited Scotland, so well known in fact that during his time there he was awarded an honorary doctorate from the University of St Andrews for his ingenious inventions and useful experiments. From that point on, he would often sign his letters as Dr Franklin. It was 1762 by the time Franklin was to return to America for a brief while, after five years away from home. His timing was interesting, as his son William had become engaged and was due to be married in London on the 4th of September, but Franklin left for England on the 24th of August. While in America, he toured the colonies in his role as postmaster, and when he settled back in Pennsylvania, he attempted again to reduce the influence of the Penn family by ideally having the King of England take Pennsylvania under his immediate protection and government. This led to a pamphlet war. Those on both sides of the argument were vying to make their case by printing and distributing pamphlets. This was near the time when the Pennsylvania Assembly elections were getting closer and Franklin was up for re-election. Many of the pamphlets therefore attacked Franklin directly, for example calling out his son William as a bastard from a kitchen wench. Franklin lost his bid for re-election, arguably at the hands of the Penn family. Despite this, Franklin was still seen as an important diplomat and a popular figure, and he was voted by the assembly to go back to England in another attempt against the Penn family as proprietors of Pennsylvania. Franklin himself was also thinking about unification of the colonies as he had done in 1754 with his Albany Plan of the Union. He thought that this might extend to colonial representation in Parliament. Such was Franklin's popularity that around 300 people gathered and cannons were fired to see him off as he left Pennsylvania in 1764. In December, Franklin arrived back in Craven Street in London, taking up his old lodgings. Franklin again travelled to England without his wife. Like the previous time, he only expected to be in London for a short while. He was wrong. This time, he would be in England for 10 years. A few months after his arrival, the British government proposed the Stamp Act of 1765. The purpose of this bill was to tax printed works in the American colonies. It was called the Stamp Act because it required many of the printed works, such as legal documents and newspapers, to be printed on a special paper that was embossed with a revenue stamp. Franklin was not wholly opposed to this tax, as he argued that loyalty to the crown was the wisest course of action. 
but this turned out to be a political blunder. Franklin misjudged the vehement opposition that met the act in the colonies. People in America were not happy with the tax. This even led to a mob storming outside of a coffee house in Philadelphia with the intention of knocking Franklin's house down because they felt that he was promoting the act. The mob was prevented from taking Franklin's house down with his wife inside by a group of Franklin supporters called the White Oak Boys. This blunder deeply affected Franklin's reputation for a time. It took a while but Franklin started to oppose the act and wrote pieces criticising it. In February 1766, Franklin presented his case against the Stamp Act in Parliament. He argued that the act should be repealed on the ground that it harmed trade between Britain and America, had the potential to incite violence as had been seen with the mob in Philadelphia and he argued that it was unfair on the grounds of it being taxation without representation. Franklin's appearance in Parliament proved wildly successful. His arguments and diplomacy when answering over 170 questions from members of Parliament were a key factor in the repeal of the Act. With this, Franklin had repaired his reputation to greater height than it was before the proposal of the Stamp Act. A year after the Stamp Act was repealed, Charles Townsend, who was the British Chancellor for the Exchequer, proposed new import duties on the colonies, which were, in effect, another attempt to tax America. These Townsend duties were passed in 1767. As with the Stamp Act, these duties were met with significant opposition from America. Franklin himself was starting to question the idea of the British being able to rule the colonies at this point, and over the next few years, his concern only grew. In 1770, Franklin published a parable to illustrate how he saw things going for Britain if they could not agree to terms with America. In the parable, a dog and a young lion cub are on a ship. As they are travelling, the dog being bigger than the young cub frequently takes its meals. But one day the cub grows into a lion and attacks the dog, leaving it wounded and regretting that it didn't act in friendship towards the lion. Parliamentarians were divided on the duties with some suggesting that all but the duties on tea should be dropped. Franklin argued that it wasn't the cost of the taxes that were the problem, but it was the very idea of them when the colonies were not represented in Parliament. These were among the seeds of the American Revolution and Declaration of Independence. In 1771, after a letter of Franklin's to a minister in Boston called Samuel Cooper was shared, Franklin was appointed to also act as an agent for Massachusetts in conjunction with his same role in Philadelphia. It was also this year that Franklin embarked on another tour of England. One of the notable places he visited was the Silk Mill in Derby, which was the world's first factory and part of the birth of the Industrial Revolution. In 1773, Parliament passed the Tea Act, 
which, on top of the existing duties on tea in the colonies, enabled the East India Company to have a near-complete monopoly on tea. This led a group of outraged colonists in Boston to disguise themselves as Mohawk Indians and sneak onto the ships in the Boston Harbour to then dump £10,000 worth of tea into the sea. This was called the Boston Tea Party. While Franklin was sympathetic to their cause, he thought it was outrageous that what he regarded as a mob had done this. He argued that the East India Company wasn't an adversary to their cause. He even suggested that the East India Company should be reimbursed for the destruction of their property. Despite not being involved in the Boston Tea Party, when news of it reached England, Franklin was criticised in the newspapers for it. And it led to Franklin being fired from his role as postmaster. There was even the potential that Franklin would be jailed. Franklin began to consider going back to America. But before he managed to get back, his wife Deborah passed away on the 24th of December, 1774. The two had not seen each other for several years. Franklin finally arrived back in Philadelphia on the 5th of May, 1775. During his voyage across the Atlantic, tensions between the British and the colonists had escalated after a group of British redcoats had attempted to arrest those involved in the Boston Tea Party. This led to several colonists being shot and around 250 redcoats being killed. The next day following his return, Franklin was selected to be a member of the Second Continental Congress, which was an organisation of delegates from the 13 colonies of America, which organised in support of the Revolutionary War against Britain and of American independence. For a few months, Franklin was quiet on the topic of American independence, which may have been because he was conflicted about the idea of independence, given his earlier stance as a loyalist to the crown, but by July he had started to become more vocal in favour of independence. Part of the move towards independence required replacing the British-ran post office with an American one. Franklin was given the role of postmaster with a large salary of £1,000 per year. He did not keep the salary, however. He denoted it instead to wounded soldiers. When independent, America would also need a currency and Franklin was also tasked with creating the system and printing the new paper currency. Franklin met with George Washington in Cambridge, Massachusetts in order to help organise the militia that Washington was leading. He did this by writing up the various rules and procedures including a disciplinary system which the men would have to follow. In 1776, the Declaration of Independence was being drafted and in June, Thomas Jefferson asked for Dr Franklin's input. Franklin didn't offer many suggestions for change. But one of them is one of the most famous lines in American history and perhaps the most famous line in the Declaration of Independence. Where Thomas Jefferson had originally written, we hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable, 
Franklin crossed it out and wrote, We hold these truths to be self-evident. On the 2nd of July, Franklin was among the members of Congress who voted for independence. Two days later, on the 4th of July, the Declaration of Independence was ratified and the United States of America was founded. This is the day that America celebrates to this day as Independence Day. Later that year, Franklin was chosen to travel to France to rally French support for American independence. In October 1776, Franklin set sail with his grandsons Temple and Benny. Franklin didn't bother to tell William, who was Temple's father, that he was taking him with him. Franklin's stay in France was to end up lasting nine years. When Franklin arrived in France with his grandsons, he initially intended to keep a low profile. But this proved impossible. Franklin was extremely well known in France, both because of his writings and because of his experiments in electricity which we have heard about earlier. He was so famous that when he arrived in Paris, crowds gathered in order to see him. His reputation helped advance his and the American people's cause with the French. And for this cause, Franklin's two major achievements while in France were the winning of France's support for American independence with a military alliance in 1778 and his negotiation and signing of the Treaty of Paris, which was the treaty that ended the Revolutionary War between Great Britain and America and further secured America's independence. Both these achievements cemented Franklin's reputation as a great statesman. But he didn't just make diplomatic achievements, he also made progress with his inventions. As he was in his seventh decade, his eyesight was starting to fail him. So he invented a new type of spectacle, bifocals. These new glasses had two different optical powers within each lens. The way he did this was to simply cut two lenses in half and then put them in the same frame together. This enabled him to both see things in the distance, but also read things close up. Franklin returned to America a hero in 1785. When he arrived, crowds gathered to celebrate him. Shortly after arriving back, Franklin freed the slaves he had remaining and declared himself an abolitionist. He was then elected president of the recently founded Pennsylvania Abolitionist Society. With this society, he would later petition Congress to ban slavery. He was also made President of Pennsylvania, which is a role he held for three years until he retired from public office. One of the initial problems that the newly independent America had was the need for a federal government. Franklin became a delegate of the Constitutional Convention in 1787, the point of which was to establish the system of government in America under a constitution. Franklin's thought, pragmatism and philosophy played a key role in the development of the principles which underlay this constitution. His early work, such as the Albany Plan of the Union, were influential to the delegates of the convention. 
The motto for the United States relates to this, e pluribus unum, which translates to out of many, one. And this motto was suggested by Franklin. One of the key ideas that Franklin helped establish was to limit the powers of the president. He thought that it was essential that Congress should be able to impeach the president. Franklin's role as a founding father of the United States cannot be understated. His influence was such that he is often referred to as the president of the United States who was never president. Franklin never held the position of the United States president. The first president of the United States was George Washington in 1789. A year later, on April the 17th, 1790, Ben Franklin passed away. He was 84 years old. His popularity was such that around 20,000 people attended his funeral. He left an enduring legacy that is still recognised to this day. For his place in the history of the United States, Franklin is the face on the $100 bill. In his will, he left two trusts, one to the city of Philadelphia and one to the city of Boston. They both contained a thousand pounds and included the instruction that they were to be left to generate interest for 200 years and then be spent on public goods. This was because Franklin, after returning from France, had developed a fascination with compound interest. After the 200 years had elapsed, the Boston Trust had compounded to just shy of $5 million, and the Philadelphia Trust was just over $2 million. Today, Ben Franklin's legacy endures, and his influence is still felt. His pioneering work on electricity paved the way for the modern world. People today still use his invention of bifocal glasses, his work, Paul Richard's Almanac, is a work of worldly wisdom that is just as relevant today as it was in Franklin's time. Many of the institutions he founded continue to this day. For example, the Philadelphia State Library, the Philadelphia University, and of course, the United States of America. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Enduring Lives podcast. If you want to see other episodes or see the show notes for this episode, go to EnduringLives.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. And subscribe if you want to get the latest episodes when they're released. I've been your host, Shane Lee. Thank you for listening. Until next time.